bum bum bottom 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 b
episode is part three in a series of conversations with creators that we started as a buildup to Comic-Con, but now Comic-Con is here. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to our interviews with James Asmus and Jim Fastante talking about Survival Street, link in the show notes. We had a conversation with Matt Kent talking about his new Dark Horse Comics imprint, Flux House. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. This is the Scott Snyder episode. And then in two days, closing out Comic-Con, or really, no, at the height of Comic-Con, Hall H Day at Marvel Studios Day, we are dropping our conversation with Tom King and Elsa Chartier discussing their new comic, Love Everlasting, and now we can report that that conversation has actually happened. Yeah, I'm finally comfortable with us officially announcing it, unfortunately <laughs> for me, but it all worked out. Oh, it was it such, out. such a good conversation, Lisa, and you killed it on that conversation, just like you killed it in this conversation with Scott Snyder. You are so sweet. It's only because I get so nervous ahead of time. Sure, sure. But it is a true pleasure to have Scott back on the show. He was here last year discussing We Have Demons and Clear and Night of the Ghoul, the first round of Comixology Originals he was doing in collaboration with Best Jacket Press. And now he's back with Canary, Barnstormers, and Dudley Datsun and The Forever Machine, and I loved the first round from this series. I think those were incredible comics. I I may you know, and we I mean we're just talking first issues. We've read the first you know issues. They're out now. July nineteenth, they came out. I, I I think I like these even more. Really? Yeah, I think so. I like them even. I like them the same but different. <laughs> Lisa fell deeply for We Have Demons. I do. I love and it so much. I would be surprised if any title, not just a comicsology title, uh, uh, supplanted your love for We Have Demons. That spoke to you in a very, like, personal way. It did, because it goes into, like, organized religion and... You know, how do you continue, how do you continue to believe after certain revelations and things like that? I find that conversation so interesting, but I also find the conversation started in Canary. Yes. Also to be very interesting. Well, I think, uh, and you point this out in conversation with Scott, but there are several themes running through all of these titles. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we talk about in this conversation. And, and I, even though Canary is a Western and Barnstormers is a World War II, uh, no, World War I uh, tale, uh, there, there is a through line that is being discussed in all of these comics that Scott is putting out. And, it, and it's not 100% intentional. It's just like the idea of like, well, he is the common seed right. in all of these stories. Everything is going through that Scott Snyder, um, you know, lens. Right. And his worldview is coming through. And I yes. think it's really beautiful. Yeah. And he's obviously so excited to bring, to be bringing these comics to life and to be unveiling them at San Diego Comic-Con. And we start this conversation discussing what it's like to return to this convention, this convention of conventions, and why this con might be his most relaxed con in a lot of ways, in terms of at least the material that he's bringing. I don't want to like spoil the conversation, even though I really want to spoil the conversation. <laughs> uh, but I am fascinated by where Scott Snyder is right now in his career and how comfortable he is being there. Before we get into the conversation proper, we should set up each of these comics so you know what the heck we're talking about. Um, the first one is 
I'm just going to read the synopses in the order that I read the comics. Oh. I don't know if that's the way that makes sense, but Do it makes it. sense to me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so first is Canary, which he does with artist Daniel Duke Panosian. Here's the blurb from bestjacketpress.com. In 1891, a mine collapsed into itself. What was the dark substance found 666 feet underground? Blending modern horror, historical fact, and Western lore, Scott Snyder and Dan Panosian have created a uniquely terrifying thriller with Canary. Is that enough, or should I keep going? I, I think that's it. Like, he, they, they give a lot of information on the Best Jacket site. I had not read the blurb, and I'm like, this feels spoilery. I, I, think, I think you gave just enough. Uh, and, and if you know anything about Brad, you know that this is the book that really speaks to him. This is my favorite of the bunch. It's a Western. Yeah. It has a lot to do with being at the nexus of things. Yes. Like, so it takes place in the territory of Utah and it opens with this discussion of like, should we become a state? Should we be join the United States? And I think that that is such an interesting mindset to start a story. Right, and it has this metaphor with eggs and we talk about that metaphor and how apt it is for a Western, you know, the transitional era in America and how this era holds an attraction still because we always feel like we're in a transitional period and the future is terrifying. This is probably the book we talk about most in the interview, just because my questions, those questions were on the top of the page sure. and then the conversation went elsewhere. But we're very excited about that title. The next one is Barnstormers, written by Scott Snyder with art by Tula Lote and colors by Tula Lote and D. Cuniff. High-flying adventure and romance fuel Barnstormers, a lush and unforgettable story set just after the First World War. It's 1923, the barnstorming era, where pilots fresh from the airfields of the Great War made a living taking civilians for joyrides in the sky for a small fee. Yeah, that's the comic, but like all of these comics, there's something else in there that they're withholding that is very critical and I don't want to spoil. To me, Barnstormers is the most like, here's a whole bunch of clues. You have no <laughs> idea what this comic is going to be about. There is like um, uh, steampunk elements. There is a mystery element. There is an unreliable narrator. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very intriguing. And Tula Latte's art is incredible. It's very cinematic. Uh, yeah, yeah, purposefully so. There is like one image of like a woman in this white mm. dress sitting mm. on a plane mm. that mm. just mm. took my breath away. Yeah, and then the final book is Dudley Datsun in the Forever Machine. Here's the blurb. Have you ever wondered why all the great figures in history had a pet companion? And if they were all running from the same mysterious threat? Such questions have never crossed the mind of Dudley Datsun, a 15-year-old with a penchant for invention. But when dastardly foes turn his world upside down, Dudley is going to have to start facing things beyond his wildest imagination in this modern-day fable from writer Scott Snyder and artist Jamal Eigel. This one feels like the most radical departure for, from Scott Snyder's previous work. It's an all-ages comic that has a little bit of an eye backward toward, I would say... 
the Valiant Comics era, and I say that in the best possible way. Like, this comic feels like the books Valiant desperately wanted to do when they were making things like The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, which CBCC listeners know we adore. All of these books are now available on Comixology. I highly recommend that you check them out. This conversation doesn't spoil too much, but I do think the conversation will be enhanced if you've read the books already, or you listen to this conversation and you'll be running to go get those books. But we also spend a lot of this conversation not talking about those books at all. That's right. And I love it so much. Yeah, something gets revealed in this conversation. I think it's a little bit of an exclusive for comic book couples counseling, and I'm very excited about it, but it's time to shut up. It's time to get into this chat with Scott, and we'll meet you back out on the outro. Scott, welcome back to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. I've been looking forward to it. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks again. Uh, I where I want to start this conversation is we're days away from attending San Diego Comic Con. And I don't know if you get as anxious about going to conventions as much as we do, but like, wh- what is your mental state going into a show as big as this one? Oh man. Well, I used to, it used to be a ton of anxiety because like when I was there for DC, there were all kinds of like high stakes obligations, you know, where it was like, you know, meet, you have to go on a panel and sell everybody. Like we're going to announce you're doing the metal and you got to sell everybody on it and you know, and then we're going to meet the international retailers. And you do, as a pro, one of the secrets of a con like San Diego is you wind up doing a lot behind the scenes of business dealings. Like, you know, you're there to convince booksellers and retailers and, you know, fans, everybody about the stuff that you're doing at that company. And and so there's a lot of running around behind the scenes from place to place. And there's a lot of like meetings and all of that. Going on my own like this, where it's just me meeting my co-creators and I have like panels and signings, but it's, it's not the same high stakes stuff. I love it. Like I'm, I'm actually really excited to go this year because I don't feel the same. I don't feel the same kind of like, I have to go there and convince the world that we can do something called death metal and that I can just go and enjoy and see all these creators that I haven't seen in, you know, a long time now, like Jock, I haven't seen in years, you know, or, I'm meeting Ram V for the first time, even though we Zoom, we've Zoomed like multiple times, you know, getting to hang out with Josh Williamson, who, you know, lives on the West Coast, but I haven't seen in forever. Same thing. It's like the joy of that is I'm really looking forward to it and getting to see fans on my own terms a bit where, you know, it's not only kind of, you know, at the DC booth where you get to meet one, you sign one item and no, you know, you got to move through. Everything's ticketed. Like I can kind of make up my own rules. So I tried to make it a lot more user friendly. I'm signing a lot more than I used to. I'm doing a bit fewer, fewer kind of panels and press stuff so I can really hang out with fans. So I'm very excited. I mean, I have great memories. San Diego is some of my, like, it's where I met Adam West. It's where I like, you know, met uh, Justice League, like all that stuff. So I got, Adam West was the best. I've told that story before, but did I tell it to you when I was here last time? You have not. No, no. And we have like an Adam West uh, story with Julie Newmar, which is like one of our favorite oh, like, wow. signing experiences. Oh, my God. Well, Greg Capullo like could not stop. Like he was so overwhelmed meeting Julie Newmar. Like that was like <laughs> his, pretty much like his first crush. And he was just like none. It was it was so funny to watch where I'm like, you never see him get nervous, but he's so nervous with that. But for me, Adam West, like when I we were on Batman, like, 
they were like, Oh, do you want to meet him? He's, you know, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like that was like high Shakespeare to me when I came home from school with Batman 66, you know? So we met him and um, he was like facing away from me and they were like, Mr. West, this is Scott Snyder. He's working on Batman now. And without missing a beat, he turns around and he's wearing like a velvety kind of blazer and a cravat and those yellow sunglasses, you know? And he, he like, he didn't know who I was and he shouldn't, but he like turned around and he's like, Scott, now it's a party. And I was just like, <laughs> is there anything you want to hear from Adam West more than that when you meet Adam West? And I was like, I, I was so happy. I, I was like, I'll remember this till I am dead. Like oh, this man. Moment. So, yeah, yeah, it was great. A magical moment that the con can give everyone. And you never know what you're going to get at San Diego, but you'll always get something every year. Uh, but like, I, I'm surprised a little bit by, you know, your, your um, lack of anxiety going into this one, especially since these are titles that are so close to your heart. And this is like a big coming out party a little bit for, you know, best jacket press in these books. It is. I mean, like, I think the reason I don't feel too stressed is that they're just a different, like, you know, I was at DC for a, a long time and there's, every year I was there, I would fight for these carve-outs to be able to do indie stuff on the side. And I would never use them. <laughs> like I would, I would fight for weeks to get a carve-out. And then the amount of energy it takes to kind of convince people internally on a political level, like all the editors and editor-in-chief and everybody that what you want to do on a book is worth trying. Um, you know, talking to all the other creators, talking to fans, trying to get them on your side in some way or other about it while still not changing anything. I mean, all that just was so consuming. And then going to a con like that, this felt so high stakes because they would present it with the art and the company was watching and the quarter depended on it sometimes, you know, if you're on a big book and all of that was like that. And for me now, I mean, the way that coming out of that matrix, I, I, I'm doing more work than I've ever done in my life, but I'm so less stressed and less tired because the energy all goes to approaching co-creators that I'm friends with and that I've wanted to work with or I have worked with before and just figuring out what we want to do together. A story, like none of the stories or story are, are like pitches I gave to anybody else. They were seeds that I brought to like these creators and said, we wanted to work together a while. We talked about doing a Western, Dan. If we do one like for Canary, I'd love to do one that thinks about all the Westerns. I know he loves, I love sort of our prisms that look at that time in American history through the genre, through the genre. So like the best Westerns usually are highly reflective of the moment in which they came out. So, you know, the searchers as civil rights as a backdrop, Josie Wales, Vietnam, you know, and so on. And so there's a, there's a tradition of that. And so saying, listen, let's build something that's about kind of the, the, the terror everybody's feeling in this moment that's done through a lens of a Western. He was like, great. And we build it together. And so I have less stress going out there and promoting these books, you know, even though some of them are, are risk, more risky and, and further away from my comfort zone mm. than I've gone before. Like I haven't done historical fiction, like barnstormers and comics, you know, I haven't done all ages the way Dudley Dotson is, is an all ages book. It's for kids and, and adults, you know, before, but I don't feel the same anxiety because I love them. And we built them from a place that wasn't stressful. It was inspired, you know? So mm. there's less, there's less 
my job is very different at this con than it has been in the past. My job is just to celebrate these things that I'm proud of and, you know, go and, and present them to fans without the stakes being like, and that's another thing about working a little bit outside the direct market, I think, with, with comicsology with these. I mean, I love the direct market. I got Noctera and Undiscovered Country and Wildfire coming out from IDW next week, too. But, um, you know, there's also a kind of a pressure that a book has to sell a certain amount to be solvent past a certain point within the direct market. Whereas this digital model we're using is like the money is there and is sort of a bank account from which we draw as we make the book. And it comes out and you don't get royalties the way you do in the direct market, but there's a safety to it where you can make something in a creatively liberated way because it doesn't have to sell a hundred thousand to be able to survive six issues. So um, yeah, I don't have the same pressure to go out there and be like, this is the thing you must pick up. It's more like, I love these. I hope you love them too. So, you know, it's that. Uh, Brad and I were just talking a little bit. We uh, about like, uh, as kids, like we never wanted to play team sports and, and my, my parents went through putting my older siblings through team sports and being just utterly embarrassed at how terrible they were. So they put me in tennis and I, I feel like tennis is so far superior because you have, cause you can suck and nobody else is depending on you. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, I, I'm excited to get into each of these new titles you have coming out, starting with Canary. Um, because you mentioned how like Westerns serve as this kind of filter or lens for the present time. And I love how you start Canary with the metaphor of the eggs and how like before each egg hatches, it's like an idea of what it's going to be. And, and until that hatching happens, kind of all of this volatility and potentiality is there. And then you also um, chose uh, the Utah territory in a time where it's like kind of considering approaching cautiously circling statehood and how like transitory times can be so um, exciting and terrifying. And um, how did you decide on that specific point in history? It was, it's a great question. I mean, for us, like it was, that's the theme of the whole book. It's why that section has that black page. If you're reading Canary, it has a black page. It just says first form. Mm-hmm. And it goes to this theory that this, not to give too much away, but that this robber bear and this kind of magnet who built the Canary mine and built mines in odd places all over the country for reasons people can't quite understand until more of the mystery of the story is revealed, um, believed that there were sort of seven forms mining takes as it goes and he believed that evolution like uh human evolution the evolution of life follows similar forms Mm -hmm. and so the book like you said starts with eggs and bloody eggs and this idea of what's inside and what we could become because it's all about this nascent moment this moment after people thought because of the civil war being over and reconstruction the things would sort of get better and go hopefully towards more collectivism. But instead there were all these things underlying that also made it feel like it could break apart even worse, you know? And, and so for us, it was very much about, it's a story about kind of a moment that's meant to reflect our own in, in a way that, um, you know, uses Western, the Western sort of genre as, like you said, a, a filter 
but still feels immediate and visceral. So the crimes that you see and the level of violence in the book is very high. It's very sort of modern. And yet they're almost struggling with how to process that in the past. They're saying, I don't understand why these, these murders are happening with no reason all of a sudden. How do we, how do we deal with that? Well, how do, we, how do we even approach that as something that's, you know, our work as the, as the, as the um, you know, as the U.S. Marshal's Office doesn't fit any, doesn't fit any model. So all of it is meant to do what you said. It's about, it's about what are we going to become? That's kind of the question of the book. Even though it takes place in the Old West, it's about now, you know, are we going to kind of devolve into something more monstrous than we thought possible? Or is it a moment when we can actually rise to the occasion, put ourselves back together and become something we're proud of? Um, I love how you introduce Holt, Marshall Holt, in the beginning of the story, um, where he has this reputation that precedes him. He has reached legendary status um, and he's in dime novels and he sees like, so everybody has this idea of him upon meeting him and then are inevitably disappointed because at this point, being a U.S. Marshal in a place that's not quite sure if it's the U.S. yet, I, I imagine it's disillusioning. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about the creation of Holt and, and deciding to include like this kind of commentary on media. narrative? Yeah, yeah, media, narrative. Yeah, yeah well, the, the idea was meant to be sort of that Holt has this reputation that kind of fits the more classic dime novel Marshall, you know, the, the hero of the old West. And he's about what he believed in very fervently in the old days was that to bring order and to bring structure and to bring this set of rules and to kind of govern these territories would bring prosperity and, and bring more freedom. And instead what he's seen it do is, is bring sort of, you know, the, the priorities of the rich to some of these areas that wind up suffering. And now he winds up half the time as a U.S. Marshal kind of feeling like the crimes he's seeing are the result of the things that he thought he was doing well before. And there was sort of also to, to speak to that, like the thing that he's most famous for catching this kind of notorious outlaw, Hiram Tell, was a very haunting, without giving too much away, mm -hmm. it, you see some of that interaction in each issue of the book up mm -hmm. to issue five when you see the end. But what you realize at the end of that interaction is that something happened back then that really shook him and made him feel in this conversation and this back and forth and this fight with this guy that maybe he should rethink everything about what he's doing. And when he comes home from that encounter kind of famous and they start writing about him, something happens at his own homestead when he gets home to see his wife and kid that sort of, again, upends all of it and makes him think there's something very dark and evil happening beneath the, the soil of this area. So it's, it's very, um, it's very sort of grounded in Western tropes. And at the same time, it almost kind of follows a tradition like um, some of the horror movies of the seventies or true detective or the kind of feeling of using a genre to then kind of bend towards a greater sense of dread and important, I think in that way, and, and be a little mind bendy and go to places that you might not expect. So it's a really ambitious book. I mean, Dan and I like from go, we're like, you think we can pull this off? And was like, let's just try, you know? So I love it. And it, get, it gets more and more kind of horrific as it goes. And he investigates the mine and he meets the other people that, um, that he meets the doctor, Ed, uh, Ed Edwards, who he calls Ed Ed. And, 
and uh, the daughter of the magnet who set up the, the town in the first place and how she's haunted by the things that she saw her father kind of doing at the expense of these miners and, and the, all of that. And they all believe something very bad happened here that's poisoning kind of the area metaphorically and possibly literally. And so there's a, there's the sense of like, was this whole project to, to, to sort of almost, it was the whole project designed to bear or a new kind of American out of this thing, something new that's really scary, or is it something, an opportunity to kind of be something better? So it's, it's fun. It's, it gets very dark. Like, you know, like um, Angel Heart or yeah. there's so many, those movies that like you enter it being like, Oh, it's a genre. And then you're like, Whoa, this is really different. And it's sort of ambitions. Yeah. And I thought, and you know, they kind of sink or swim on that. It's like that where it's like, it's definitely not an easy book where it's like, Oh, it's a, he's going to find the bad guy, shoot him. And, and that's why we kind of set up to go back to the beginning of your question why we have a sort of dime novel model and the kind of Western genre as a, as something that's like a, a kind of fixture in the story that we're working against, you know, and kind of cutting against. So he's known to be this guy and the story they tell about him and Hiram tell is very conventional, but what happened was very unconventional and like defies kind of reason and logic to him. Uh, as a Western obsessive, I, I, I think a lot about, what you know the draw of the genre and because the western especially like the late 1800s western where it's this transitional period where there we know what's coming but the characters don't know what's coming they don't know what america is going to be because it's in this transitional period there's a lot of dramatic um resonance for where any modern audience, like we always feel as a modern audience that we're like in a moment of time, there's a fear of what's coming. And yeah. that's why the Western always has an appeal. I agree. And the idea with this Western is honestly to kind of lean into exactly what you're saying, where it isn't set in time. It, it is. It's set in the moment it happens, but it projects a future that could happen if things go a certain way with what's going on in this mind that would get us sort of to a scarier version of the moment we're in now faster. So mm. it's almost like we wanted it to be a Western that is a Western and yet is sort of a different kind of Western that like says, yes, um, this is a historical moment and we're reinvestigating it. It has all of the kind of, you know, iconography of a Western genre film or story, but ultimately what's going to happen in it and where it's going to go is going to say, it's very much about, now and changes kind of i think i think it'll upend expectations with it it's definitely like trying some things that i feel like you'll be like people will you know be surprised by and hopefully love but might hate i don't know i i love i love those kinds of stories though that this one is definitely one that's more like you know it's not it's not a safe one it's more of yeah. a one that's like you know we're going there you know we're gonna go for it I, I mean, I find the scene between Holt and the Apple family so compelling because Holt is trying to, uh, you know, use his command as a U.S. Marshal and the Apple family going like, well, we have the opportunity, like, we don't, we're not part of the United States. We're not and a state. We have, we, and we have the option of just disappearing. All we have to do is go a couple of miles that way and and you Goodbye. have zero jurisdiction or effect on our family. And the fact that, um, you know, uh, Holt 
then still continues to assert his authority. It's just, it's like, I, like, even though I know something dark is happening, I go like that Apple guy, he really, (laughs) yes, you know, he has a leg to stand on in this scene. He does. Like I wanted to, again, like the whole book is about a transitional and weird liminal moment. And it's like, you could go this way or you could go that way. So everything stands on an odd gray area. That's kind of the way the book is. Like everything is kind of in between where it's a Western, but it's also has elements of horror that unsettle that. And it's also, you know, it's, it's a moment when things are supposed to be coming together, but they're kind of falling apart. Like everything is flickeringly sort of transitional, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I like about it. And that's why the title, you know, the canary in the coal mine, the whole idea of, a warning, you know, a warning about something that is deadly, but people don't listen to in some way. So it's very, um, it's a, it's a, it's a great book to do with Dan because Dan is always up for anything. There were scenes, there was actually some scenes in the first issue um, of murder that were, we wound up taking out just because we felt it was too violent and too disturbing for the opening, you know, of of the book. And um, especially in times like these, when things are so, um, you, you want to be sensitive and not overdo it. But, you know, Dan is very, is a big believer in what we're trying to do with it. And um, it's great to have a partner like that, especially someone who's like you, you were saying, I think like such a fan of the Western genre. I mean, both of us go on about like everything from Butch Cassidy to, you know, like all, like all of it just down the line, down all the way back to like Shane and whatever and John Ford films all the way up to like Bone Tomahawk, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see the cinematic history in the art that Dan's putting together. And uh, like, just beyond that, like the way Dan, like Ben's perspective in the, in uh, with these panels, like it's really Mm -hmm. impressive. Uh, But, you know, I want to go back to your first round of uh, uh, books with comicsology and how those all kind of rode the line of different genres especially like you know clear did and canary and barnstormers they ride the line of multiple genres and maybe not even ride the line they smash the genres together um like are you are like what's your methodology there when you're putting these books together clearly you want to stretch yourself into new areas but it seems like you want to like do as much as you possibly can in every comic well yeah i mean like the fun was for me like the first wave of books is kind of like working with um creators that i've worked with before sometimes extensively Mm -hmm. um but doing creator own for the first time together and in doing creator own kind of lean into the things that we love that you'd expect from us, but in our own way. So there was kind of a comfort zone to that wave where it was like, you know, Greg, obviously Francis and Francesco, I have long histories with. Um, And the work that we did there was definitely, um, you know, ambitious, I think, but it was all within the zone of God, we're finally free and we can do what we love doing. And this is what, you know, we love doing. Let's do it. Um, whereas this wave of books is with creators that I haven't worked with extensively before and their genres I'm not as familiar with. So, you know, American Vampire had a lot of elements of Western, but it was only a Western for a short period of time before it wound up moving all the way through history. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, um, uh, Dudley Dotson has kind of fun speculative sci-fi, but it's a all ages book that it's designed to be read by, you know, kid like our kids that was that was the the goal with that book was to make something that we would enjoy as adults but that you know would be a good entry point for the kind for kids 
our own children's age and that were like really becoming excited about graphic novels at that time when we started talking about it. Um, and, you know, Canary was for me, I mean, Barnstormers for me was also like historical fiction, you know, doing something that I haven't done with a partner, Lisa Atula, who I've, you know, been friends with a long time since she invited me to Thought Bubble when I was just starting out. And, um, you know, so this wave is, is like trying to push myself by being inspired by these amazing co-creators to do things I haven't done and, and to, you know, this, this last year, I was very informed by getting to teach again. I love doing mm. that class that I get to do comic writing 101 through Substack and really grateful for the sort of support we've had from so many people signing up. And the two big rules of that class are, you know, you've got to write the thing you want to read. I don't care what it is, whether it's fantasy, memoir or whatever. And secondarily, um, you got to try and be the most exciting writer to yourself all the time. And that's kind of what this is about. Like this wave is, I could do another safer books, but I wanted to try something that you wouldn't expect necessarily from me, knowing me from Batman and metal and, you know, horror stuff. None of the books are, I mean, there's horror and canary, but it is, again, it's, it's more of a kind of mind bending Western. So the idea is to do things that push me, you know, by virtue of the fact that I have such great co-creators. And the other thing, like, I, I can't remember if I said this when we first started talking, but the books are all built real, really organically with each person. You know what I mean? So like, you know, the way that a book like Barnstormers comes along is that every book is about things that I'm concerned with and my co-creator are concerned with hopes and fears about now, you know? So like I said, like Canary is clearly about those things. Barnstormer was really about, I've always loved Barnes, the, the, the magic of kind of barnstorming um, ever since I was in my twenties. Um, but I love the idea of young people back then. I loved it for different reasons. Um, it was the idea of these young people doing this desperate thing together, walking out on the wings of the planes, jumping from plane to plane for money, these death defying feats. And it was amazing. And now at this age, it's taken on a different meaning. And I was talking to Tula about that when we saw each other, um, when we were maybe three years before the pandemic, you know, um, about three years ago. I was saying to her, I was like, you know, I, I love, we talked about doing a story that's a barnstormer story, but I keep coming back to it now because it's like a hundred years since that happened, that period. And it really, when you think about it, that period has a lot of echoes with today, right? It's a quiet period, generally speaking, between two cataclysmic moments, between World War I and the influenza pandemic and the crash and the Great Depression, the 20s. And it's seen as this period where, you know, the jazz age and whatever, but right. really what was happening was big business was running rampant and rich people were getting richer and the working class was, you know, basically being prepped for a total disaster in the thirties and, and was watching a lot of things, you know, taken away. And so there was a feeling of, I think, looking back, you know, and reading about it of dread and of worry among young people and disillusionment after the war and all of this. Um, from working families, you know, especially in rural areas. So the idea is barnstorming suddenly takes on a different meaning, right? It's people using decommissioned warplanes that they're able to buy because they're obsolete now and turning them into this kind of wondrous death-defying dance in the sky for money. And then the government saying, you're not allowed to do that because it's ruining the, the, the sort of image of the airplane industry. And them saying, screw you, we're doing it anyway. And doing it until they kind of can't anymore. And so creating a story that's about this fleeting, beautiful, you know, 
moment that's also terrible where these this young couple is kind of doing this dance in the sky before it all kind of falls apart felt appropriate you know mm-hmm. it felt like i don't know it felt resonant for me thinking about the way my kid my teenager feels about this moment you know and in, mm-hmm. in that way too and, and as a young person coming up at a time when it, there's so much there, there's so so much less optimism and hope than there was you know 10 15 20 years ago there's so much more dread and a feeling of kind of wealth being out of reach so i wanted to do a story where what happens is the two of them start they she i won't ruin the first issue but the basically what happens is the main character uh picks and his and the person he picks up without ruining the surprise too much him <laughs> and his teammate decide to pretend to be rich people whenever they land they land on these properties that are vast all the kind of gatsby-esque things and they sneak into the parties they're having and steal money from them and then fly off and they oh. wind up yeah it's a lot of fun it winds up becoming this big kind of this big kind of adventure with this dark underbelly as they start to get pursued by um, somebody from her past in that way and, and stuff. So it's, it's really, again, it's personal. And so the, the whole point of each of these books was building something from the ground up with a co-creator that meant something to us. And Dudley, like I said, is kind of a hopeful all ages book for our kids that sort of has a big belief in collectivism. It's about an imagined sort of history where all great inventors were part of a secret society and passed down an invention called the forever machine from Daedalus, the mythic inventor in ancient times, which was a perpetual motion machine that opens doorways to other great societies across the galaxy that have achieved the same feat. Um, and it's passed down from inventor to inventor through the years from, you know, Leonardo da Vinci through, you know, uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and all the way down to now um and it comes into the possession of this kind of like wannabe inventor who's a teenager with tough life dudley dotson and it's about how he kind kind of comes to believe that it's worth trying to turn this machine on again when nobody else thinks so and so it's about trying to believe again in the idea of achieving amazing wonders together as opposed to retreating into these kind of entrenched more fearful kind of positions you know and so all of it is like that it's i love them you know i love the books because they're they're built from a place that that's, you know, that I believe in, like we, we built them as co-creators and partners and friends. And um, I hope people love them as much as we do, but I'm okay. If they're not for everybody, it's not, you know, it's not Batman. It's not dark nice metal where it has to, you know, I love it to death, but if it doesn't bring a certain amount of people into the tent, people will get fired. So it's, mm. it's not that. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Like what I love talking well, talking to you, Scott, about comics is that clearly you are so uh, passionate about your own stories. Like you love your own stories and you love your audience and you are providing them a wide array of types of stories this time around. Like, I mean, you know, with these six titles, they, they, they run the gamut as we've already discussed. Uh, But you yourself have so much enthusiasm to them. And every time I listen to you talk about them, you seem so high on these <laughs> partnerships. Thanks. Well, it's the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, I have a lot of flaws, you know, as a writer, I'm sure. And as a, as sure. a, you know, as a human being in the industry, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I've tried to, I really have tried on my kids, like on my love for my kids to be an honest 
communicator about the stuff I'm working on with fans. I always, James Tynan and I, I just saw him for lunch like last weekend and we were joking. He was teasing me about it. He's like, do you remember the old days where you used to say to me, like, do I have enough? Do I, I used to go to him and be like, do I have enough of a following at this point? Do you think to be able to really stick up to Dan DiDio about this without getting fired or this? But our belief coming up, and it's the same now, is your real power as a creator comes from an honest and sincere relationship with the fans that follow you. And that, you know, Capullo says it too. Capullo always said, like, you know, we we were we were employed by DC, but we work for you. He'll say it at cons all the time. And, you know, he means it in the way that we're always, I'm always going to do what I believe in. I'm not going to, you know, change the story to make it more appealing for other people. But I'll always try to communicate to you why I love it, you know, the way it is and, and why I think it's, you know, worth trying and not bullshit about like, well, this is the biggest, craziest thing. I, if it's not, if it is, I'll say it and I'll go out there and go on a unicycle and juggle balls and, you know, be the dancing bear for, for anything. But I won't sell something to fans out there, to readers that I don't believe in that I've not done, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm very, I'm proud of that. I'm sure I've thought something was really good and I've totally screwed it up at times, but I didn't sell it to you thinking I had screwed it up at that time. And I mean it with these, like these, I know are not like, you, they might not be for everybody, but you know, I, I love them and I believe in them and I believe in what we're doing. I mean, that's the other thing is like, I don't know, as a meta project too, I believe, I like the idea of what we're trying here with um, with comiXology. I mean, I'm trying different legs of the stool, you know, like mm -hmm. for example, like Noctera is a very, a very conventional comic book, not in terms of what it is story-wise, um, but I mean, in terms of its, its delivery system, it is a direct market book with variant covers and arcs that are collected in trade and have special editions. And, you know, when it comes out, it, we do a number one about each character in between to boost the sales and, you know, really, really give you more than your money's worth. It's very, very direct market heavy, you know? And I believe in those books and I love that. I'm doing, we're going to bring witches back and do that with witches and, you know, with, with wildfire coming out the same week as this, like that's a direct market book with variant covers all around. But, part of the thing that I like about what we're doing with comiXology too, is it's like a system. I think I said this to you last time, but I believe in trying it. Like my mm -hmm. kids seem to have a different experience than I did with comics. Like they love browsing digitally. That's what they do. They like to have a subscription to services, whether it's video game stuff like mm -hmm. steam or it's music. They buy vinyl. My older kid is he's up there now. Like he loves vinyl. And I know vinyl is booming across the country because people stream and then they buy the collectible and it's similar with TV and film. And I think, you know, in comics, I worry about the way in which digital and print are held in these competitive spaces where digital has to be day and date, the same, same price, same content. And the worry with that is that you're forcing them to compete and that eventually digital will hurt stores in a, in a big way because, you know, as it, as it becomes harder to get out of the house or go to stores, or you might just say one day it's raining, I'm going to get digital and then you're hooked on that. But if you create a system where they're, where they're symbiotic and ultimately like you're able to browse all of our books, like if you have Comixology Unlimited or Kindle Unlimited, or if you have Prime even just Prime, you can read everything I've done for Comixology for free, like, or for no extra cost done. Like there's no, there's no cost for you. 
Um, so if you have a prime membership, go read all of our, all we have demons clear everything. Like, you know, yeah, it's awesome. The goal, the goal is to get more and more people into comics that way. And then if they love the book, release a new version of it in print. Like we have demons has the script and it has the designs and it has this and Canary is going to be two to three issues in one chunk with all of Dan's mm. designs and deleted scenes and that, and each one will be like that. So we're trying something I believe in, whether or not it works. It's definitely working like for us, like it's working in the way that it, it did very well for Comixology, luckily. And then, you know, even though I know that there were issues with their interface with Amazon and sympathetic, to, um, you know, super sympathetic as a comic reader to that. But the thing to understand is that, yes, like for a dyed in the wool comic reader using Comixology, I understand like the integration with Kindle and that stuff is 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 maybe not as appealing as it was before but as somebody creating there and in, internally like what you see is that the way that it's now melded with amazon is bringing a lot more comics into the algorithmic search of people looking for things that don't necessarily go to comics first so it's drawing in a lot of people from the amazon readership into comics um mm -hmm. you could argue that all day but the, the bigger point i'm sorry <laughs> that i'm that i'm trying to make is that coming out digitally we were worried like what if we come out digitally and then we don't sell in the shop you know or meaning like what if we're hurting stores but we had demons sold ninety thousand for us the first issue and it proved to us that there's if you do differentiate print and digital mm. there is a really good way of doing it and we might not have cracked it i'm sure somebody will probably do it better than i can soon but at least seeing it as a prototype and realizing there's a path there makes me excited for one possible kind of lane to drive in in the future in comics that i believe in you know and my co-creators yeah. do too that it's like you can browse digitally and then buy what you want to have on your shelf physically and one doesn't necessarily have to hurt the other it's funny like i um you know brad and i grew up reading reading comics at you know, a volatile transitory time when, um, uh, like, uh, Lisa wasn't wanted. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like how, um, we did relish going to the store, sure. flipping through the, the object. And then like, um, like I was a big time, like, Kazaa user. I like ruined <laughs> mm -hmm. my computer illegally downloading all kinds of music. And and um and now the young people growing up with streaming and this sense of like I should be be able to like go in and wade in and and have access to everything. The most bang for your buck. Um but like we just talked to Matt Kent who's starting Flux House, which is an imprint within Dark Horse and having the conversation about well, how can we make the object different and sacred and something that you are like excited? Like, if you're going to bring it into your home, it has to be something that you are excited to have. And, what Scott's and, talking about is yeah. like the Criterion collection of comics. Like, we want like a Criterion Blu ray equivalent of a trade paperback. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, even if you do it single issue, I mean, the problem is for my kid, right? Like, we're, you know, I, I like we give my kid a nice allowance, but to go in there and buy three comics, it's yeah. like almost $15 if he's not buying an over, you know, and I, that's just different than when I was growing up, you know, the price point is way higher. The, the, the volume of comics that, you know, he's interested in versus again, his money is like total chasm. 
Right. You know, and, and it makes it really difficult. He want, he's used to from manga going on to Shonen Jump. He's used to webtoons. He's used to. And so it's frustrating to him to go into a store even like he grew up in fourth world comics right by me, you know, and I have pictures of all my kids' babies yeah. in the store, but like to go in and be like, I have like $30 to spend. I get six comics, maybe, you maybe. know what I mean? Five, <laughs> probably yeah. five, but that's angering to him when he has this incredible volume in other reading spaces. And they've corrected that in a lot of ways. Like you can go onto the DC app or the Marvel app. They're not as like user-friendly necessarily. There's also Comixology has an incredible volume and library of stuff. So the the goal, I wish somebody would crack it a, a unified way of providing almost a library system digitally where, yeah, you could pay for the subscription, whether it's a Comixology or it's a DC Marvel or an integrated subscription through all of them somehow, where mm-hmm. people could just go and browse and fall in love with comics. I don't have any problem not getting those royalties or getting minimal. If what it means is they're going to go to the store and then get the omnibus of our Batman for the mm-hmm. shelf, or it means they're going to go to the store and get the toy of, you know, of the, we have demons thing that we're going to do in that way. Or if it means they're going to come to my site that we're going to this merch stuff, we're going to do at best jacket and buy a shirt from Noctera because they read it digitally. Great. You know, it's all, it's all about how to create a system that invites in the most readers, gets them enthusiastic about the work, and then has them buy the physical in a way that makes them feel special, that they're in on the ground floor of something that is, a, is, a, is an artifact that they can hold. Not just like the way we read comics where right. I saved them because, you know, once they started becoming speculator and collectible in the 90s, sure. But before that, I mean, I would read them and, you know, throw them, they all, you know, like it was just reading because they were 25 cents, 75 cents, you know, yeah. and now it's like, so the point is like, the other thing I'd point out is like, you could always have a subscription and bypass the story. I had a subscription. I remember vividly getting my like Craven's Last Hunt web of Spider-Man, like in the mail, reading it and then being like, I have to go to the store to talk about this with the, you know, like. So the store has always been a place for me that's about community. It's about the special experience and the special artifact that you bring home that's yours from that, like a sports bar. It's not, it's not, a nece- it's never been the necessity for the, the distribution line of a comic. You know what I mean? But yeah. it, and to make it special and to adapt in that way where it is, like that's what it has, the things that you want to get there to remember being there and and a fan of this thing the fan of this series wow they've got this that's awesome you know not how much money do i have today i only have this and i've got to pick you know that that's that's what i mean like so i just think doing what we're trying to do with comiXology whether or not you know people have issues with the integration with amazon all that stuff i understand it's more the the project conceptually i believe in and i'm excited about the idea of of you know that it's, it seems it's working within its, within the math we set up for ourselves, just working better than I had hoped. So yeah, I mean, I'm excited. For me, I mean, this, this is everything that Lisa and I talk about and we believe in uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, I, I would always recommend folks, if you want to browse comics to get on Hoopla and go to your local library. It's crazy how many comics are at your library now uh, available yeah. for you to read. Um, but you know, and then, you know, like all that stuff with comiXology and the transition there. Yeah, it was funky. We just got on the Kindle app. We ended up having no problems whatsoever on that. But I understand the that's, other frustrations with people. No, that's how it is for us, too. It's it's like 
but I, and I understand like, it's, you know, they should work it out and it's whatever. And they are, I know they are like, yeah. but the bigger picture of it is like, you're saying the bigger picture is how do we, and I love Matt Kent because I think he's always thinking in these and willing to take risks and trying things, whether they work or they don't. And I love that's, I, I feel like as creators, if you have the ability through an established career or, you know, like I'm very privileged in the opportunities the comics has provided me to take mitigated risk, to try things that you think might point an interesting way forward and aren't necessarily like ways of just making money for yourself quickly. And, you know, at the expense of anything, like you should try it. Like it's fun to try it. And I'm like, this might be something where legitimately some of these books, like we have demons or other ones, like, you know, there is a chance that you could make more to going straight to the direct market. There's a direct market heavy, you know, sort of track record for some of the creators, but we all wanted to do something that we felt was like an interesting change, you know, and, and that, and I didn't want the books to compete or cannibalize each other. And suddenly it was like, well, wait, like this not only solves that, but also might be a good model for the way comics can work in the future, at least in one capacity. And aren't you the guy to do it? And like yeah. you've built like this awesome audience. They'll follow you a lot of stuff. You can get experimental and you can tell like a crazy array of story types. Well, I mean, that's what I like. Like I, I you know, I always said like my, I love, look, I love plenty of writers that mine, you know, a narrow bandwidth, like, and do it amazingly. Like you, we, you know, you can think of them from the, you know, the, the, I, I'm not, I won't like, you know, put words into anybody's mouth, but plenty of us love comic creators that um, kind of do the same thing over and over in different variations on a theme, different variations, but stick to one kind of artist, stick to one kind of, you know, story generally. Um, and I, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing, I have nothing disparaging to say about that at all. You know, I like, again, some of my favorite people do that. But my my very favorite people, honestly, my very favorite writers from Stephen King to, you know, to filmmakers Spielberg to, you know, uh, comic people like Jeff Lemire um, try you are the ones that kind of try things you would never expect from them genre wise, try things that are huge, bombastic, epic things and then try things that are intense, intimate, needlepoint, emotional stories. Um, and are always experimenting, but you still can kind of recognize it's them by the themes that go across their work, by the interests that go across their work, you know, and the things that you see them returning to as kind of touchstones. So, you know, they're, they're, the passions that they have and the things they're exploring are, are, are visible beneath the surface in the work, even when it seems completely different from itself, like mm. different books, you know. So what else do you aspire to, you know, for me, at least I might fall on my face trying it, but I, I like the idea of being like, I can try and do death metal, which, you know, can't get more over the top, ridiculous, bombastic, fun comic book event. And then you can try something that's like wildfires, which is intensely just grounded and realistic in a very desperate, you know, nothing supernatural story that takes place in the course of just a few days, like here, you know, or, mm do something that's whimsical and historical, like barnstormers, you know, try anything you feel drawn to, you try, you know, that's, that's what, and I'm, I love being in a position now where I feel like I can, you know, where I, I'm, I love being free of some of the, not, they're not even really, I mean, they're constraints, but more like 
I loved being inside the math of DC for a long time. You know, you learn how to maneuver within a company. You learn the people who are your allies. You learn who's going to fight you. You learn who's going to go behind your back and try and crush everything you're doing. Like there are all those kinds of things. And you learn it well enough at a certain point that it becomes comfortable. And you like within that zone, I was always trying to push, you know, with other creators to do things you might not expect from us and grow. But then you reach a point when it's like, you know, it's too safe and too comfortable. And this period is my favorite so far. Like mm-hmm. I, I love being outside of it and being able to be like, you know what? I'm making a book with my kid right now. You know, we're just, he loved my 15 year old loves comics. And I was like, you know what, then let's put it together. Let's, we'll make oh, yeah. a budget. We got to find, we got to find someone who's very cheap or, you know, not cheap, cheap, but you know what I mean? Like someone <laughs> who's up and coming like you, because this is your budget. I'm not going to spoil you with a comic. Like I want you to see how it works. And, you know, let's talk about the idea. Okay, look, do the outline. Let me help you with the out. Like, and it's, he has a great idea. It's really fun. It's like, but that's our summer project. And I'm free to do that because, you know, I'm, I'm my own boss right now. And it's, it's been a real joy, you know, it's fun. It's, we, we have like an artist and everything and oh. someone he found who's really, who's new, but has done a couple small things. And I think it's great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's his book. I just, you know, he, when he asked me for guidance, I really dive in with him and we dissect it every night. And he, dad, do you think this is strong enough? Well, I do think it's strong, but like, let, let's talk about the character a little bit. Like, do you think this is maybe, you know, could be sharpened and it's about, I'll tell you, I'll spoil it. It's about, oh. um, he came up with the idea that he was like, well, what if tomorrow there's this like patch that's like somewhere, you know, just in your backyard. And it's like this black patch where everything dies in it. And then every day it grows by 15 to 20 miles in every direction. And nobody knows why or what it is and why it can't be stopped. And it takes, and it goes through water and it takes 10 years. It takes place 10 years after that. And it's about young people living in the ruins of everything covered by this kind of shroud. It's called the shroud. And um, they live in these stilts kind of stilt sort of ramshackle stilt towns and they zip line between plates. It's all, it's all about like, don't touch the ground you know kind of like the yeah, floor, floor is lava. lava yeah it's like the floor is lava like if that wasn't a, you know it's it like that if there was a title that reflected that we do it but it's really fun and it's like you know i love it and uh you know that that's open to me because i'm on this side of it where you know i'm not necessarily worried about you know being part of a bigger company right now i'm sure mm-hmm. i will again like i'm sure i'll go to marvel at some point or go back to dc at some point you know and there's still a lot of stories I'd love to tell, but right now it's fun just being on my own. Mm. Uh, Brad knows that like, I have a hard time talking about like number ones. Like I, oh, I like when we have issues. to do, when I have to do an interview with about just a first issue, but what I love about the interviews we've had with you is we've gotten a suite of first issues. And like, I, like, as I read them, like, I feel like I can feel recurring themes through the three books just because they're all kind of being filtered through you, I guess. And yeah. I, I think that one of the themes I see in these three titles, Canary, Barnstormer, and Dudley Datsun, is this um, sense of, like, Americana, that that mm-hmm. um, respect for, like, that American grit and ingenuity. Um, and... Uh, and uh, I just, I, like, I, I get the sense that in each of these three stories, 
the good and the right ideal exists. Like, mm. like yeah. even, even like in Canary where things we know are going to go so dark that, that American ideal of we can come out and be good and we can act as a force of good just like exists. And yeah. um, uh, can you speak to that a little bit? A hundred percent. I mean, that, I think that's probably the core of a lot of, you know, if I had to kind of be cerebral about it and talk about like, you know, like that, like a, probably a big, if not the big core theme of things dating back to American vampire to now, it's that, you know, if you talk about it in terms of the context and the, the country and the, you know, not just sort of the personal emotional theme of the same theme, but I mean like the same thing to me, even in my prose work before that was like, you know, are we going to be pulled by our worst impulses or is there something not only redeeming, but um, is there a sense of grace and hope and in, in us beyond the kind of collection of bad things that you realize when you scratch the surface is there, but taken like writ large, you know, thematically from American vampire, it's the whole theme of that series is, you know, the, the most heroic aspects of American culture and the most monstrous and history seen through those lenses. And I think the last six years for me, has been a huge intensification of that that question you know from the work on things like justice league where you know lex luthor essentially pitches to everybody why why continue this fallacy of being or trying to be our best selves why why not side with us the villains and get everything you want at the expense of some people sure but you're on the winning side with us so you know that and people vote for that and that and similarly you know metal and death, um, death metal reflects that as well and you know it's what witches is is too it's it's always that battle of like are we going to give in to our worst impulses or are we going to become something better that's much more difficult to to achieve but in the last number of years it feels like a you know a, an incredibly urgent question so it's there in all these books definitely you know is there in the first three as well. I mean, we have demons speaks to it really openly. You know, it's literally that it's like we were made the discoveries. We were made of more of the bad stuff than the good stuff. Mm -hmm. But even if we're kind of awful and made of this bad stuff, we still have the potential to be better than we're supposed to be. So, you know, can we try to do that and light up, you know, mm -hmm. and clear was, you know, this pull towards, deep down all of us kind of want to retreat from the hardships of the real world and live in a reality of our own making at a moment when we have a chance to see things clearly and face the hard truth about what we've become or sort of sink back into this kind of dream of what we decide we want how we want to see ourselves and you know night of the ghoul is the fun of it is it's about a monster who believes that when a society gets to a certain point of sort of excess and decadence and rot what's needed is a monster to come wreck it and reprioritize so everything is about kind of crossroad moment you know crossroad moment when you have the opportunity to take a big risk and hopefully become better than or you know speak to your better nature even though we're made up of you know a worse nature probably a lot more easily I like and i think I, I believe that about our country i mean i mm. believe I believe we're built on these principles that are so noble 
And yet, even as we're building the country under those principles, we're doing egregiously horrible things to huge sections of the population. And so it's this constant best and worst thing. Like, how can you be so awful to so many people, you know, slavery and what was happening to Native Americans at the same time, you're purporting to talk about these things that are revolutionizing thought, you know, about everybody is equal in this, but yet women, you know, everybody, all these people are not. But that idea of being able to even say that is that we are, you know, to, to purport to say everyone is equal and everyone should vote. And it's, it's amazing. It's heroic, you know, and that, so it's that I, I believe like that in a lot of ways, it's the most heroic project and the most monstrous all at once Mm -hmm. back and forth. Like, and that, you know, it's like dangles something that could be amazing and awful often allows the worst things to happen you know and that and and we're at a really i think we're at a really you know uh sort of inflection point right now in so many ways so that's definitely in the front of my mind i i love hearing about now your kid's story about the shroud and the and that idea of like like I, I'm like oh yeah I relate this like all encompassing darkness that just keeps spreading out inexplicably right but still there is the infrastructure for zip wires and I'm like oh thank God <laughs> so, yeah like there's still there's still people going like ah we can get through this look to the helpers yeah <laughs> yeah well and the other he came up with this whole other cool aspect which is like it rots it kind of eats every substance except this one i won't give it away but this mm-hmm. one rare material and so this stuff is in demand because it's, it builds it's at the bottom of the posts that create these kind of lattice work of communities and so everyone's looking for more of it and so it's kind of you know mm. there's there's a rumor to be a city of where the rich live in that mm. kind of last bastion that's of made of this material you know and it's a beautiful city that's like resplendent so it's very I love it. I'm very proud of him and I love working on it with him. So we need a good title. We don't know. We had what I was going to call it. We were like, we pitched back and forth. One, we pitched to the artist, don't fall, you know, just like that's it. And then they kind of pitched back, like it might be a little too simple. So Mm. I don't know. But I like don't fall. I think it's Mm. kind of fun. Well, well, we're instantly excited by that idea. We're subscribing. I don't care what the streaming service is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Scott, we could talk to you forever and we are excited about uh, heading out to San Diego and hopefully we'll be able to track you down at the Comixology yeah. booth and say hi in person. Um, Please we come ha- by. I'll, I'll look for both you guys, you know, awesome. in a second. Honestly, uh, Lisa, like in a minute, like them just come up and say hi. All right. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Uh, we have links in the show notes for everyone where they can find your comics. Uh, but in case they don't read those show notes, where can they uh, find you, our listeners, to continue this conversation? Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, if you want to, if you're at San Diego and you want to find me, I'm going to post my schedule. Like my schedule will be up, uh, you know, momentarily. And I'm there like th- all the way Wednesday through Sunday. So, you know, there'll be plenty of opportunity to come say hi. If you want to find the comics, like in general, and you're not going to San Diego, Wildfires is coming out from IDW on Wednesday. And these three books, Barnstormers, um, Canary and Dudley Dotson, all number one of most of them are one of five and Canary's one of seven. They're all coming out um, next week as well. Uh, so but they're coming out Comicsology Unlimited. They'll be out from Dark Horse in print, you know, six months after they come out. 
digital, but if you have a subscription to Amazon Prime or Comixology Unlimited or Kindle Unlimited, you can read all of them for nothing. And the ones that we already did, we have Demons Clear and Night of the Ghoul. So awesome. Scott, thank you so much for chatting. And uh, we'll find you in San Diego. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's always so. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's uh, let's get together and at least meet face to face and say hi. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Take care, you guys. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. And there you go. Our epic conversation with Scott Snyder. How was it? Damn good. I really am intrigued by the comic that his son is writing. Yeah. And uh, like, I'm so inspired by Scott Snyder's passion for education and this idea of like, if you if you have a great story in you, if you want to tell a great story, you can just do it. Yeah, and I mean, Scott Snyder is unlike any other creator right now. He came out of a tremendous run from DC Comics. He was at the height of his powers and popularity. And what he did with it is to invest in himself and invest in his audience, but also have the faith that there is an, a larger audience out there that will really engage with these books. At the same time, he's not afraid that not, that everyone won't engage with each one equally. At this point in his career, creatively, he is like not playing with scared money. Like he's not afraid of just going like, hey, I'm just going to give this story a go. Uh, like, I know that I'm interested. I don't know necessarily if any other reader is interested, but on the off chance, let's just make the book. But this is exactly what you want a creator like Scott Snyder to be doing. This is, this is what you want to see the people who have reached his level then go like, now let's throw some Hail Marys. To me, like Scott Snyder being able to play in all of these different like subgenres is just indicative of his like fluency with all of these different mm. vocabularies. Like he can tell his story now using the vocabulary of a Western or a World War One or like a sci-fi fantasy situation, but it is all still his his worldview, his angle. And he knows how to collaborate. Mm. He knows how to find the best partners to tell these stories. Or he's even smarter. He knows to find the best talents to help create these stories. Yeah, he finds the collaborator and then together they go like, oh, well, what kind of story will feature both of our strengths? Yeah, what can we do? And actually, the more I talk to creatives in the comic book field, like that's the way that it goes. Because the idea is going to change over time. But once you've committed to a collaborator, that's the that's the relationship that's really important. Absolutely. So yeah, our thanks to Scott Snyder for returning to Comic Book Couples Counseling. It will not be the last time Scott Snyder has been on this show. I'm excited to talk to him about the next round, and I'm really excited to talk to him about the comic he's doing with his kid. Yeah. Yeah. It would be great to get them both on. Oh, how fun. We need to get back to Comic-Con, Lisa. It's happening right now. And our next conversation will be with Tom King and Elsa Chartier. That episode is dropping in two days, discussing their new book, Love Everlasting, which is another title, like 
you know, obviously it's for comic book couples counseling. Like, did they make it for Brad and Lisa? <laughs> it feels like it. But please, if you are enjoying these episodes that we're doing associated with San Diego Comic-Con, please share them with your friends, your family, your strangers. Uh, return to the next episode. Go back and listen to our previous episodes with Matt Kent, James Asmus, and Jim Fastante. We're really proud of what we're doing this week here at Comic Book Couples Counseling. And, you know, we want as many ears on it as possible. Okay, Brad, we the clock is ticking. We gotta go. I've been paying a fire hydrant 50 bucks a day since last Tuesday to get in the Hall H line. Oh. And um, yeah, yeah, it's getting expensive. Oh boy. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? We are always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. I accidentally said we, like the royal we. Yeah. Oh, 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 this over here? You can speak for me as well. <laughs> if you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. We did get out a Sandman episode yesterday. I am exceedingly proud. We are halfway through our issue-by-issue issue Sandman read-through. We just talked about Sandman 38, Convergence, and I, I can see the end in sight, and I don't like it. I want it to go on forever. But if you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, CBCC Podcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us a gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, which is in two days, <laughs> with Tom King and Elsa Chartier talking love everlasting, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. I gotta go find this fire hydrant. That's too expensive. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs>